right, our scripture reading this morning, make them up on the screen. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Nancy. Good morning. How's everybody doing? You know, a few things induce panic, like the feeling of being genuinely lost, which I guess is sort of a reality of um, a previous age. It's difficult in this day and age to be genuinely lost, but maybe you can recall a time where you felt that panic. Sweaty palms, accelerated heart rate. I mean, that can sort of also be exhilarating, I guess, depending on the situation. Maybe if you are with friends or have some assurance that it's not a dangerous situation, it can be quite exciting or even humorous. But if it's a dangerous situation, maybe not so much. Nanette and I visited Germany back in 2014, and for part of the trip, we based out of a small town in the southern part of the country, right on the border of Austria. And one day, we were planning a, a short day trip, uh, an hour or two to the west, and our Airbnb host recommended that we take an alternative route uh, from the one that we told him we were planning to take, because this alternative route would to dip us into Austria, take us through a beautiful mountain pass near Alpine Lakes, and it was splendid. However, which is an, an important word in the story, however, I didn't have an international data plan on my phone, so we couldn't use those navigation tools, um, but I did have a Garmin GPS. Do you remember those? It's like a dinosaur at this point, but at the time it felt like an adequate tool. I mean, it wasn't nearly as out of touch as MapQuest. Certainly wasn't as out of touch as Rand McNally. I felt pretty good about it. The only problem was our Garmin only had the Germany map package. So as soon as we, you, you probably know where this story is going. Unfortunately, at the time, I didn't. I should have put two and two together, but I didn't until we crossed the border and lost all directions. And as you might expect, our lack of navigation tools, coupled with our, uh, I guess I'll say linguistic limitations, also interpreted as ignorance, made the trip fairly difficult. We began wondering, there was about an hour or so where we were legitimately lost and unable to find somebody we could communicate with to get directions. And we were wondering, how in the world are we going to return to our lodging by dark? 
That feeling of genuine lostness can be really concerning. Maybe you have a similar story. If you do, I'd encourage you to hold that in your minds for the rest of our time, because in today's gospel text, we find Jesus tell a parable about a lost sheep, and then also about the shepherd's response to that lost sheep, and in so doing, teaches us something important, not only about himself, but I think something also important about us. So it begins like this in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, we'll pause here for a moment before we actually get into the parable. If you remember, two weeks ago, we were working our way through Hebrews 11. We talked about Rahab, who was commended for her faith, and she's commended for her faith because of the hospitable welcome she gives the spies sent by Joshua to gather intel on the city of Jericho. And then two chapters later, the call to followers of Jesus is, be like Rahab. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. This is a call that we find repeated explicitly throughout the New Testament, but it's also demonstrated implicitly in the life of Jesus, perhaps most notably in this section that we're in in Luke's gospel. These chapters 14 through 16 show that Jesus constantly lived this life of radical hospitality, Not, of course, by hosting extravagant dinners in sprawling mansions that were built for hosting large groups of people. No, he is hospitable primarily in offering his presence without partiality, making people feel at home, even when they're in their own homes, making people feel genuinely at home. As you follow the story, for many, this fact that he doesn't show partiality in his hospitality, it's actually a pretty upsetting feature of his life. So if you remember Luke 14, the previous chapter, we find Jesus offering his presence, dining in the house of the religious leaders, dining in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And then the very next chapter, the chapter that we're spending time in today, It opens with what is described as the tax collectors and sinners all drawing near to him, which then prompts the anger from the Pharisees and scribes. Asking the question, can you believe him? He receives sinners and he eats with them. And as you're reading the story, you're like, yeah, we know this because he just ate with your group of people in the previous chapter. We know that he eats with sinners. I think one of the subtle reminders that we find building throughout this section in Luke is that we are all on equal footing in terms of our lost condition and in terms of our being sought out by Jesus. So keep this in mind as we read this great parable of the lost sheep beginning in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, most in the room probably have maybe some familiarity with this parable. Of course, Jesus not only teaches us that he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd that knows the sheep by name, and and he will lay his life down for the sheep as he teaches in John chapter 10. But we find another aspect of the shepherding love of God in this parable we peer into the extravagance of the shepherd's deep love for each individual sheep. And I think this is significant. Now, it's important as we think about this image, the shepherd and the sheep, it's important that we keep in mind that throughout the Old Testament, so the historical books, the Hebrew poetry, even in the prophets, we find the people of God, we find Israel often depicted as God's sheep, And often we see Israel's leader at that point depicted as the shepherd of God's sheep. So, for instance, just one small example of this. In 1 Kings 22, when the king is about to die, there's this concern that the people are going to be left like sheep without a shepherd. But throughout this image, throughout the story that's being told in the Old Testament, the promise continues to build, it's building and building, that this wandering people, the people of Israel, God's people who often don't have a faithful shepherd, at least not consistently, but the promise is that one day they are going to be shepherded by God himself in the Messiah. So there's this connection between the the image of the sheep and the shepherd, and these messianic expectations that we're continuing to build. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene and begins employing this image of the shepherd and the sheep, teaching that he is the shepherd to the sheep, he's doing much more than just telling this neat little story about agrarian life in the first century. He is saying, I am the one who is here to save you. I am the shepherd. I am saving the lost sheep of Israel. I am saving those who are outside of the fold. So Jesus again here, just like John 10, where he says, I'm the good shepherd. Here again, he tells us that he is the shepherd. But the fact that Jesus is the shepherd in this particular story is maybe the most striking feature of the story, maybe even a little bit concerning because what the shepherd does in this story seems rather foolish, at least on the surface. Robert Farrar Capon commented on this fact by saying this, parables are told only because they are true, not because the actions of the characters in them can be recommended for imitation. He goes on, any shepherd who makes a practice of leaving 99 sheep to chase after a lost one quickly goes out of the sheep ranching business. The parables are, one and all, 
about the foolishness by which grace raises the dead. They apply to no sensible process at all, only to the divine insanity that brings everything out of nothing. Capon suggests that the parables are true because they show us what God is like, not necessarily because they make sense to us, because they often do not make sense to us. Think about this parable through the lens of conventional wisdom. Maybe conventional business wisdom or interpersonal relational wisdom. What is done in this story seems unthinkably impractical. So if Jesus' words in in last week's gospel text weren't difficult enough, think about the utter impracticality of what he suggests here. Almost the foolishness of what is suggested here. I am going to leave the 99 who have more or less kept it together. They have demonstrated some sense of responsibility in staying close to my side. I am going to subject them to the sincere possibility that they will become lost themselves. And, and of course, for a sheep to become lost is basically a death sentence. So the ones who have some degree of responsibility, I'm going to subject them to the sincere possibility that they are going to become lost in order to find the one sheep who either out of foolishness or rebellion, we don't know, but that one sheep who strayed from the flock. Why in the world would a shepherd do this? I mean, if this is how we treat our finances, it would be disastrous, most likely. You know, I I know that I lost $1,000 of the $100,000 that I had saved. And so I'm going to put the remaining $99K on the line in a high-stakes game of poker, assuming you play poker, which I should not assume that. Hopefully you don't. I'm just joking. If you do, whatever, play away. I'm going to put the 99K on the line in this high-stakes game in hopes of recovering that measly 1,000 that I know. You count your losses and move on unless there is maybe a problem with gambling. Why in the world is the shepherd doing this? The math does not check out unless... The math does not check out unless the math in the kingdom of God works differently, which apparently it does. We find another picture of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. It is unconventional. It often does not make sense to us unless our frame of reference is dramatically adjusted. The only way the math in this scenario makes sense is if each individual sheep has infinite value. I think there's an important reminder for us in this. As we think about the value of the human beings that we come into contact with on a daily basis, as Christians, we cannot understand the value of a human being in terms of monetary possessions or any possession. We cannot understand the value of human beings in terms of net worth because the virtue uh, uh, or the value of a human being is not dependent 
at all on wealth. Our personal value is not substandard if we find ourselves in poverty, but the opposite of that is true as well. To understand personal value in terms of financial abundance is actually to always severely underestimate your value, even for the wealthiest. Because a millionaire is much, much more valuable than the millions of dollars they have in the bank. A millionaire with a lot of money in the bank and somebody in poverty with nothing in the bank both have infinite, inestimable value. To the shepherd, the one sheep that is lost, the value of that sheep was infinite. And if the value of that sheep is infinite, it must be pursued. So let's pause there in the parable. I want to return to our scripture reading today from 1 Timothy and see if there are any resonances here with what's going on in Paul's words. So Paul says in this letter, Begins it, I thank Jesus who judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Paul says Jesus came to save sinners. This, we know this. This is not a novel idea. This is sort of Christianity 101. That, and Jesus himself attaches the significance of his incarnation, God putting on flesh. Jesus attaches the significance of that event to that task of seeking the one who is lost. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, in that story told about Zacchaeus, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is why Jesus comes, to seek and save the lost. And Paul acknowledges that fundamental reality. Yes, Jesus came to save sinners. He came to bring back the wayward. But then he goes on. Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, of which I am the worst. So not only is there a, a remarkable degree of honesty in Paul's admission here, and he sort of says, let's just tear down the facade, let's get real for a moment, I am the one who is lost, but it's also remarkable or strange on the surface because in many ways Paul would not have been considered to be the lost one. He would have been considered to be an insider among insiders. I mean, you're, you're not lost, Paul. Remember that list of his credentials that he writes about in Philippians chapter 3. He says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, that guy doesn't seem lost by most definitions of lostness. He has stayed, as it were, close to home. 
In many ways, he hasn't wandered off into the abyss. He was strict in his adherence to the law, as he says, I was blameless. And yet he goes on, Christ seeks and saves the lost. This is why Christ has come, those who are in sin, and that is me. I am the worst. I am the most lost. So if we think about this in relation to the parable that Jesus tells about the lost sheep, I think we find a reminder that all of us find ourselves in the position of the one sheep who has wandered far from the fold. We could think of that image from Isaiah 53, that image of the suffering servant who would bear griefs, who would carry sorrows, and experience wounds for our transgressions and the crushing weight of our iniquities. And the prophet in that text is very clear about the universality of those transgressions. In verse 6, the prophet says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think when all of these are taken together, we are reminded that it's not just that foolish, irresponsible sheep over there. It's this sheep that has wandered from the fold of God. It is this sheep who is relentlessly pursued by the love of Christ, the good shepherd. The shepherding love of Christ, which is admittedly, according to this parable, extravagant and maybe even seems reckless. A love that so desperately longs to find you to find me, and to bring us back to the fold, that it is willing to do the unthinkable. I am the one who was found. You are the one who was found. I'm not the 99. I I guess in many ways I probably would be considered the 99, but realistically, I think if we look at the sweep of our scriptures, the 99 are also the one, because even when we have the sense that we are home, that we haven't strayed still, we are in desperate need of being found by the love of Jesus. In some ways, I think that need may be even more desperate because it's not quite as on the nose. It's, it's hidden. It can be managed. I can keep up good Appearances. We could think of a parable told a little bit later, the parable of the return of the prodigal son. This is the position we find the elder brother in that parable in, who, who never leaves home physically, but his heart is far from the father's, in desperate need of being found and saved, just as much as the one who physically left home. That's how Paul concludes that thought. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the chief among sinners, the most lost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life.
I want to begin bringing this to a close. So we've established the fact that each of us find ourselves in this position of lostness, even when we don't necessarily think of ourselves in those terms. And when lost, what is the first, most necessary step to get back on track? Well, it's the simple admission, I am lost. It's the simple admission that requires a degree of humility to go try to communicate with somebody who doesn't speak English and say, look, I have this ancient device that is not getting me back to where I need to go. And so I can continue to drive around endlessly in circles, or I can acknowledge that I need help. That acknowledgement can be a very difficult step, especially in our individualistic culture where I'm responsible for me. I need to pull myself together and fix whatever is wrong. I think one of the things this parable might be teaching us is that I have no hope of fixing this mess. I have no hope of finding myself and, and fixing what is wrong. I'm confronted with the reality that I am the lost sheep, the one in need of being found by the love of Jesus. And I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think you are too. And so we pray with the psalmist from our call to worship today, cast me not away from your presence. Because of my sin, cast me not further away from the fold of God. And in this parable, I think we find Jesus saying, I'm not casting you away. I am relentlessly pursuing you, seeking you out wherever you have wandered. And Jesus says at the end of the parable that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous ones who do not need repentance. And again, I think it's helpful for us to avoid assuming that we are the 99 who do not need repentance as though immunity from sin or exemption from repentance were even a remote possibility. I am the sinner who is found, who is being sought, who is being carried, not in my own strength, but carried by the love of God back to the fold. I, I really believe that Jesus is always relentlessly pursuing each of us, drawing us back to the fold of God when we have strayed, drawing us back to the fold of God even when it appears as though we have stayed close to home. I believe Jesus is pursuing you. I want to share something else that Capon said as we begin to close this up. He said, a lost sheep is, for all practical purposes, a dead sheep. It is the admission that we are dead in our sins, that we have no power of ourselves either to save ourselves or to convince anyone else that we are worth saving. It is the recognition that our whole life is out of our hands and that if we ever live again, our life will be entirely the gift of some gracious shepherd. 
God finds us in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, he puts us on his shoulders rejoicing and brings us home. I believe that for you. I believe that for me. I believe that for each one we come into contact with, the love of God for you is so real, so strong, that it will go to great lengths to find you, to bring you home. It will even do what seems irresponsible. And so when you find yourself in that place of lostness, maybe you find yourself there today. What's left to do but to allow Jesus to hoist you onto his shoulders, to carry you back to the fold, to the joyful voices welcoming you home. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you to stand. We are going to gather around the table of our Lord today. And the very act of coming to this table is the admission that I am lost, the admission that I am in need of a power outside of myself to save me. I acknowledge that need, but I also respond to the welcome that Christ is extending, to the life that he is offering, the place that he is giving. So as we prepare to come to the table this morning and just for some, some practical guidance, we'll make two lines down these center aisles. If you're new or visiting, we invite you to the table of our Lord. Receive what Jesus has for you. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own. But as we prepare to come to the table today, to sort of put into practice what we have been talking about, the admission that I am the one who is lost, I want to invite you to join me in this confession of our sin. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. People of God, hear these words of assurance from Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. 
He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Thanks be to God. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?